Hello ladies, gentlemen, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Media Voices. This season, we've been doing deep dives into some of the biggest trends, tools, and tech that has affected publishers over the past 12 months. Now that's as part of, and it's all been leading up to the publication of our annual Media Moments 2023 report, which is going to be released this week over at voices.media forward slash mm23. This week, we are delighted to be joined by Elaine de la Cruz, who is co-founder of Project 23. Project 23 helps organizations build diverse and inclusive cultures through workshops, coaching, consultancy. And Elaine founded it with Gary Rayner after seeing that there was room to do things better in the media industry. That seems like the understatement of the century. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. <laughs> I'm Joanna Cummings. And Joe, who are you? I am a freelance editor and writer and editorial director of the Grub Street Journal, which I've founded with the famous Peter Houston. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, <laughs> delighted to have both of you on to have a chat about this. Really, this is going to be one of the topics which is going to be the hardest to condense down into a 40-minute episode because we could go and go and go and go. But Elaine, to begin with, I wondered how did you come to work in and I, you know, what were some of your motivations and drivers to actually get into this space? Good morning, and thank you for inviting me on. It's a pleasure. Um, uh, how did I get into DEI? So I think just as just you introduced me there, Chris, I I worked in the media industry for sixteen, seventeen odd years, um, and I I had a great time working in media, and it suited me. It suited my lifestyle. You know, I I I got involved in the jollies. I climbed high by working hard and doing well. Um, but after a while, I started to realize that I wasn't immune to these ceilings that people were talking about. Um, but that took a while. Mm. I actually, I actually, like, a, like many, like many women in media, like when it, many people of color in media and other organizations or industries started to, I always thought, you know, I just work harder. I can get there. Like these these ceilings are there, but I can I can get there. I can break through. I'm good enough to get to this point. I'll keep on going. And then I actually just started to get really frustrated um, with the fact that actually I wasn't really being seen for the value that I had <clears throat> and that I was bringing. Um, and long story short, after a while, I just started to fall out of love with the job. Mm. Um, when I, I could give you kind of like the play-by-play -play and the series of events version of how I got there, how that led to kind of voluntary redundancy, which I snatched with two hands and thought, yes, I'm out of here. I'm going to take it. Gave me the opportunity to financially set ourselves up having our own company. But actually, um, I think the reason I do the job that I do, like deep, deep inside is I think one of, there's two things probably. Um, I've definitely, I am someone who has a real sense of fairness mm. within me, I think. And that's not always great. That's sometimes a hindrance. You know, the world is not fair, but I think I am driven by this, oh, that's not almost like a child sometimes <laughs> on one end, you know, that's just not fair. But on the other side, just in a more kind of calmer note, just to see the world with the inequalities that there are and the notion that we can kind of make that better or put things right. Often when we talk about diversity inclusion, people talk about the numbers first or who's here, who's not here. But the inclusion and the belonging piece is a really big piece for me personally to under, to, to have a, an idea of the fact that actually, do you know what, for 20, 30 odd years of my life, I wasn't really acknowledging the fact that actually I don't feel like I fit in here or I'm trying really hard to fit in 
or to change my shape or mm. do all sorts of things, I think really resonates with the work for me. And I think that tends to propel me forward within it and gives me a bit of fire in my belly. Ondid, could you tell us a little bit more about Project 23 itself? Yeah, of course. Um, so Project 23 is an organization that I set up with Gary Reno that you mentioned, is my co-founder. Uh, oh, goodness, about five and a half years ago now. Is, it, is that one of those um, re- realizations like- where you go, holy shit, it has been a while, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a little bit, but but it's both. It's like, wow, that was freaking ages ago. And also, oh God, that really did feel like, you know, yesterday when we were in a calf just making up ideas for a business because we wanted to build on a partnership that we'd established in media for a long time. Uh, rather than go into two separate jobs, we thought, let's just have a look at and see what happens if we do something together. Mm-hmm. And from that was born Project 23. Um what we do as a as a business is we help other organizations to build uh, equitable and inclusive cultures, i.e. we are supporting organizations to make diversity and inclusion part of everything culturally because it should be part of everything. We need a DEI lens over everything mm. and it gets everywhere rather than certainly what it used to be a lot and what it still is every now and then, of course, DEI being a, a thing on the side. Mm. Yeah. Something that we have to do, um, something that is like a should rather than a we must or we will. It's oh, we should do something. So let's let's get some stuff going on over here on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, so we help organizations to to go through the line of business, really, or through the line of the organization. How can diversity inclusion just make us better, make us make our people happier, make our organization more successful in what we're trying to achieve? Um and we do that through straight up advice and consultancy, focusing on strategic development and support, basically getting a plan together. That's all that means. I hate this word strategy sometimes because it seems huge. Um, and, and a word like plan and actions and objectives really breaks down. Like just You just need some basic business rigor a lot of the time mm. for most organizations when it comes to DNI, rather than uh, uh, just feeling like it's the right thing to do no you need a plan Mm. so we help organizations with that and then as you can imagine a big part of what we do is also around education learning unlearning understanding how to change um broadening our perspectives beyond our own lived experiences or the knowledge that we've got so far um i hesitate to call myself an expert because every day is a learning day there is a lot of stuff that we all should be learning about different lived experiences, um, the the social and political and historical factors that create the systems and processes that we all operate in today. Mm. Um, but we need to all be able to start understanding that DE&I is more than just unconscious bias work and that there is, mm. there is work to be done all the way. So a lot of the work we do is around workshops, coaching, so that we can manage um, different change, um, to get involved, to hold ourselves accountable, et cetera. Um, and I find that that's probably one of the, the richest work that we do when we're actually in the room with people um, supporting their learning journeys. So for Project 23, you're obviously, last five and a half years, you've got a kind of unique view on where we're at. What would you, how would you summarize how things have changed in those five years? Because they have changed in a lot of ways, right? I mean, hugely. Um, the fact that the fact that DE and I, DEIB, 
I and D, whatever we want to call it, um, is now genuinely workplace vernacular, at least. It's there. It's out there, isn't it? Um, When we started five years ago, we we knew that there was so much room for change, not just in media, but across society, across so many industries, of course, dominated um, often. I mean, the media industry dominated by, you know, often male, middle-class, middle-aged, cisgender men, right? <clears throat> and that's the systems and processes that we all then operate within. Um, and so we were, you know, as people who didn't fit into that mold, we we knew that there was so much talent that the that industries are missing out on. We knew that you know, uh, success and productivity, efficiency could all be creativity could be so much better. But I felt like back then we were really selling that idea mm-hmm. more than we are today. I think people today um, have a better understanding of why DE&I is crucial to their organizations or their business success. Um, whether they're doing something about it or not is a whole nother ball game. But I think most organizations know that this is going to help us and is going to drive our organization further. Um, so that's one big change. We're, we're selling it less mm-hmm. um, as a concept. In the middle, though, I think what has happened, obviously in 2020, George Floyd was murdered and people who who do what I do, done what I do for a much longer period of time than I have. I think we all experienced a rush of clients, individuals, businesses approaching us wanting to do this work for the first time. So, you know, you see us, you know, globally, we see a huge movement um, driven by Black Lives Matter to put D, E, and I, and for the first time, actually, specifically racism and anti-racism within the workplace um, and, and particularly media, we saw that, right? So this is now becoming a real conversation and a real want to change. Um, so you see a rush to do more work, a rush of investment, um, hirings of chief diversity officers, chief diversity managers, et cetera, setups of em- employee resource groups and networks. However, I think, you know, the news cycle has changed, unfortunately, and in 2022, 2022, this year particularly, we've started to see um, that investment slow down or even be cut altogether as other macroeconomic factors and challenges have come into play for businesses. So there's been a real shift, I think, in the fact that this is, this is something that organizations really know they need to deliver on, but there is still... Uh, there is still a huge challenge and a huge barrier to sticking with this work and committing to this work mm. when, you know, quote unquote, other, other bigger priorities come along. So, so I think that really challenges the whole, mm. the whole piece. So where does that inertia come from then? Because if, you know, to your point that people do recognize this now and it, yeah. it has really embedded itself within the agenda, what is it that makes DE&I so easy to cut from a business perspective. Where has that perception come from? This is not a trend, right? Mm. This is not something that we can, to your point, There is we cannot just silver bullet this. Um, and unfortunately, I think that some people, as they've gone through a journey of starting, of enlightenment, of realizing that, oh, okay, perhaps I've had blinkers on all this time, unknowingly or knowingly, 
And there is discrimination that happens. There are inequalities or there is a talent pool that we're not tapping into that we could tap into, for example. People start to unpack what's going on. And I think, I think in our experience, in my experience, you often come across leaders or businesses that want to fix things straight away. Um, and then you're doing things kind of on false pretenses, really. So we we think that we're going to roll out some training or do some talks or just invest X amount of money into something over a short amount of time and things will just get better and it won't be. So- and then we can move on to the next thing that I have to move on to. Whereas actually, you know, it's not like that. It is an always on situation. I mean, unless I'm lost and unless I'm wrong, these are societal issues that are not going to change in our generation. But mm. we can make a big difference within the confines of our organization as leaders to make people feel like they're included, to improve the diversity within our organization over time, to change the systems and the processes so that they're fairer. But we, because everything is interlinked, you can't just flick all the switches and everything is done. You have to have a, a multi-layered approach to DE&I work and treat it like a verb. Like we are, we are doing DEI all the time. And so I think there can be a bit of tiredness and fatigue and inertia because there's a misconception that we can just be done after a while. Mm. Um, that's not to say, though, that we can't see benefits straight away, mm. that, that, you know, a, a long-term plan doesn't give us short-term benefits and, as well as long-term. So just, uh, you know... We can put in a long-term, multi-layered approach to this, you know, run employee resource groups, have a strategy, uh, change our recruitment processes, do like outreach to communities or go to schools to get more people in media as lots of different examples. But in doing that work, we can also straight away start to create safer spaces at work for people to just exist and be happier. And that's going to make a difference straight away to those people who wouldn't have had that otherwise. Yeah, because when I um, spoke to you at the Magazine Street conference, you talked about people needing to be more impact-focused than solution-focused. Is that what you mean by that? Could you talk to that a little bit more? Yeah. Did I get on my soapbox when you I was did. talking about You that did, joke? and it was <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> you were so quotable that day. <laughs> oh, God. I remember swearing quite a lot. I am passionate about this is because this is something that we hold ourselves accountable to. So we are a, an organization that, that delivers interventions, solutions, trainings, workshops, right? These are solutions-focused things. As in, we'll come in, we'll run something that has a bit of a container around it, a beginning, a middle, and an end, arguably, and then we leave or, or we continue to work with you in a, different, in a different form. But sometimes organizations in our experience, uh, and sometimes we, we could fall into this trap as well, where we're just focusing on delivering uh, a great talk, um, where it is engaging people, it's, it's ticking all the boxes in terms of sharing the knowledge, um, but if you don't focus on the why, on the impact of what you're saying or what we're trying to do, mm-hmm. then what's the point, arguably? So often we might, as an example, solutions focus, we tend to find that organizations will look to do management training or, oh, yeah, we'll set up a, a, an employee network or let's roll out unconscious bias training or do a series of talks or we'll celebrate 
you know, one of many kind of cultural awareness days or International Women's Day, something like this. We do yeah. this stuff to raise awareness or other things. I've done leadership workshops before where I've had amazing U-turns from certain leaders and they have said things such as, that was an amazing program or that was an amazing workshop, Elaine. Thank you so much. And obviously, brilliant. For me, I'm mm. thinking that's, we all like to hear that. That individual doesn't actually change anything in their circle of influence, in their sphere of influence. Then what's the point? All mm. we've done really, arguably, is just offer someone a profound learning experience, indulge them in the fact that they now know more than they did before. Mm -hmm. But if it doesn't impact pay equity or if it doesn't change the fact that that marginalized person feels more seen or that we're, we're, we're reducing discrimination in the workplace, what's the point really? Mm -hmm. Solutions are important. Workshops are important. Profound penny drop you know, light bulb moments are important for us as humans to learn and change, but we always need to ground ourselves in the why. Why are we doing this? Why is it important? Why are we running inclusive management workshops? Well, it's because these are the most influential people in the organization sometimes, and they have the ability to cascade their behaviors, first of all, their positive behaviors throughout the organization, or they have the clout to kind of change and shape the way we do certain processes so they could be mm. better. So that's obviously talking there about you, how you almost begin that change by talking to people who have the ability to make decisions within a business. But how are the most effective media businesses implementing and tracking these changes? Because it seems to me that based on what you know, you've know you said and what we've heard elsewhere, that it's, it's useless unless you are tangibly tracking whether there's an internal change as a result of this over a long period of time. So how do the most effective media companies actually go about doing that? Do they have a, you know, a, somebody whose role it is to track that stuff and feed it back? Do they have uh, reporting within the business? Is it all of the above and more? First and foremost, it's about actually tracking the change, measuring the change. Um, and you'd be surprised, or perhaps not, how many organizations don't try to measure the impact of this work. Um whether that is in sentiment work and how employees feel about the organization that they operate within and what their experience is like, or whether that's in more um, composition, like you know, diversity, workforce composition data. Who works here? Is that changing? Um, how does that look as you go further up the organization or in different departments that inevitably have more power than others? So um, there is a lot of... Um, data that we already have within, well, within a lot of organizations, there's already data that exists that can measure the impact of this work, particularly over the, the, the longer term piece. So how long does it take to hire people? What is our churn rate like? Who works here currently? Um, what is it? What is the, what does the data say? What does the insights say in the exit interviews? Right? So there's, there's, there's data that we already tend to collect as businesses that we should look to and kind of dig into deeper with a DE&I lens. So as what I mean by that is if, we are, if we're already collecting some kind of employee engagement data, um, are we able to disaggregate that data and see beyond perhaps 74% uh, of employees feel like it's a positive, great place to work? Are we looking at the 26% who mm. haven't said it's a great place to work? Who are they? Who are the people that are, are 
advocates for this organization? Does identity play a part here? And if we dig deeper into, because um, it is about looking at the data, but you always have to dig deeper into the nuance because surveys, um, numbers can tell us something, but we really do have to have a good understanding of the nuance and the experiences that people express beyond it. It's why you run focus groups and listening sessions and try to create safe spaces for people to share what's going on for them. First of all, there is a misnomer that you just can't measure this stuff. That's just not true. Secondly, we have various amounts of HR data already that we can look to, to to look at the improvements of our success as a business and the people side of things, I mean. From an actual solutions interventions perspective, we should be measuring everything that we're trying to do. We can't run workshops without asking people what they thought about it. Did it meet their expectations? Mm and asking them what they're going to do as a result of it, perhaps checking in with them six months later as managers or uh, directors or third-party consultants to say, okay, you did that thing, what's happened off the back of it? And then to be honest, on t- the cherry on top of all of that is that this isn't a linear process. This, is a, this should be a cyclical thing. We, mm. we, we assess, we plan, we implement something, we measure it, we review, and then we go again. What did we do? that didn't work? What did we do that we could do more of that would help us further? And and we just keep on going round that kind of merry-go-round of improvement. As we've talked about before, often people who are working in DEI, it's often kind of people lower down the organization that kind of inspire things or get things moving. Um, and there's a lot more talk now about how they're prone to burnout um, partly due to lack of support from organisations. So I just wondered how should companies support them? You know, what needs to change and what advice would you give to people who are working in those spaces to kind of protect themselves? The, that last sentence, what advice would you give to those to protect themselves? It's, it's a sad state of affairs a little bit, isn't it? That just the phrasing of that question that we have to protect ourselves. I think that's got to be the first acknowledgement, isn't it? That, that, that there's something to protect ourselves. Is, is there something to protect ourselves against here or from here? Yeah. Um, mm. And I think organizations, you know, you don't have to go very far to be able to get insight on what it's like to, to do a DEI role of any form within an organization. So mm. typically, you know, people are burn, pe- people are so prone to burnout because you're going against the grain, you're you're trying to change things. Um, like a change consultant, but usually not paid the same amount as a change consultant. 100%. Um, usually not paid at all. Um, often people who put themselves in those positions are people, as you mentioned, from un- from underrepresented or marginalized groups. So they're very much living that experience within that ecosystem mm-hmm. as well. Um, and I think the kind of triple combo of it all is that often uh, DEI roles are given to individuals from an organization without enough power and clout behind them and almost as though this person's going to sort that out. Mm. Whereas actually, DEI should be a, a, a group organizational verb that everyone is accountable for. I remember when, when I was at Dennis Publishing, 
we went from Microsoft to, oh, I'm, going, I'm hoping this analogy is going to work. I'm just kind of <laughs> spitballing it as we go I'm here. De- I'm right? desperate to know where it's going to go. <laughs> I know. I'm missing. We, we moved from Microsoft to G Suite to Google, right? And you can't, that's, that's a massive thing for an organization to do. Someone's, you know, bright idea, Google's going to be better for us. Great. Let's give it to this person to do. No, this person might be able to strategize and work out how we do it, work out all the different strands and elements. But you need champions, you need early adopters, you need educators, you need project managers. You need to be able to ask people to do things and then they don't do it and ask them again. You need to kind of manage people and support people through this. If we can Mm. offer them spaces to just talk about their experiences, we offer group coaching and and one-to-one coaching for DEI practitioners, including ERG chairs, because you need a kind of restorative space often to acknowledge your experiences and perhaps working and talking with other people. If you, if as an organization, if you have DEI leads, if you can connect them with other people in that space outside of your organization, the value of that is huge because we need to be able to connect to each other and work out um, what best practices, what ethical practices, or to know that, oh, I'm not alone in that. Um, so that building of community is definitely something that organizations can help and empower people to do. Invest in them in the round is what I would say. Absolutely. And, and the metaphor worked 100%, just so you know. Thank you. <laughs> it's very relatable. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And we, we, do you know what? we For Project 23, we co-opted like... Um, uh, the like a change adoption curve that we saw when when we did actually start to move from Microsoft to Google, like that was presented to us this kind of bell shaped curve, mm. and that's that's the same within DE and I anyway. You get you get early adopters, you get you get a you get a group of naysayers at the back end who we could spend loads of time and energy on and he'll create a lot of noise about this, the anti-woke brigade in the DEI context perhaps. Yeah. And often they steal the oxygen for the work. But actually, if we focus on like the middle majority, most people in organizations that we speak to want there to be greater diversity inclusion, but aren't sure how to go about it. And I think once you get that tipping point within an organization on that adoption curve, it becomes more of a cultural norm. It becomes something that we can support each other on. It becomes easier to deal with the discomfort uh, and the mm. solutions become clearer. So, yeah, we I co-opted just, that. So maybe the analogy works even further. Okay. <laughs> well, I've just looked up the some change adoption curves and the people who are obviously the last to adopt things seem to universally be called laggards which is brilliant yeah yeah because that's like that it just puts me in mind of like old sailors (laughs) who are being lazy not pulling their weight (laughs) one of the things that uh, I, i would love to get your opinion on is are there any media companies who are not just doing this right not just kind of shouting about what they're doing but who are actually making tangible change are there any media companies that really stand out do you know what the way i'd like to answer this question i think is by acknowledging the pockets of work that different organizations do. Because mm-hmm. um, if you take something like the, the PPA, right? So the PPA, they have just introduced a next-gen board, okay? So they're, yeah. they're wanting to be impact-focused. So they have a board um, 
which is typically, you know, obviously, like many other organ- trade organizations and bodies, is senior members across the industry. Um, it makes sense to diversify who is shaping and informing what the PPA should and, and does, right? Should do and does. So they have introduced a next gen board. And in their selection criteria for the next gen board, they have um, been equitable in the selection um, of those individuals. They've, they've wanted not only fair representation, but they've wanted different voices who are there, the voices of people who don't normally get heard. Um, importantly, then, they've em- empowered that next gen board and they will be empowering them over the next year and beyond, uh, probably until the next next gen board comes to fruition as well in order to actually give them the space to do what the PPA want them to do, to shape, to inform, to guide, to listen. So that's literally a, a, a direct way of getting voices, different voices around the table. Um, and that's just one way of doing it. And interestingly, what I love about the role that I have now in DE&I is that we are so many of us are just open source about everything. We have a notion, we have a value in our business of we, we rise together. It makes no yeah. sense. There's no monopoly over this stuff. There's no real IP. So I know that uh, immediate media have picked up um, on the idea of the next gen board, you know, discussed it with PPA that they'd like to do something similar. Great. And I think the PPA are hoping that there's a, they'd have a blueprint for how you set a next gen board up because this is a great thing that others organizations can do. So it kind of, the ripple effect is great. So I think there's something about what are we doing that actually is getting different voices at the table is one thing. Uh, And then another thing is how are we just sharing what we're doing with others? What I liked about media um, when I spoke to Riddy Riddier over there, actually, who's the head of DNI. Um, yeah, is that a knowing? Yeah, Joe is in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Joe, you sounded so cool. like fond and affectionate all of a sudden. Yeah, we- she mentioned that the for the for the last couple of years they have been working to build the foundations of good DEI. So to my point earlier about not wanting to silver bullet things, often in an organ from an organization strategic perspective, we can think, okay, this needs to be leader led. It needs to be within the culture. It needs to be part of everything we do straight away. But you've got to go through a journey to get to that point. You know, if we, if we as an, as an organization are kind of uncomfortable with just speaking about racism as an example, we can't fathom that we're just going to make this a leader-led strategy straight away, right? We have to break down the phases of this work. And what I loved about working with the media is they had a real sense of understanding that in order to do this work well, sustainably, and over time, we need to put the building blocks in first. So we need to put things in that are going to be able to measure. We need to put the right people in place. We need to have um, strategy, people strategies that are interwoven and interlinked, L&D, people, organizational development, DE&I. We need to do things properly in order for the, the activations and the solutions that lots of other organizations do to, to stick. And I love, I love that. We're often asked as a business what, equitable action looks like because we talk about equity all the time right the notion that treat people how they need to be treated in order to to address readdress the balance and swing the pendulum back into the middle right because it's too far the other way um and 
uh, we talk a lot about equitable investment into learning and development. So we've worked with some organizations where they are uh, doing coaching for black and brown people, um, acknowledging that it's harder. There are more barriers. There are systemic barriers that are in place for people of color uh, or for women or for carers in the workplace or for those that are neurodivergent. Any number of different um, singular or intersectional challenges that people face. So it makes sense to equitably invest in those people. And coaching is one way that we can do that really well to give access to support, to empowerment, um, to people who are often marginalized is a way to get them to have a better experience, encourage them to develop themselves, to stay at the organization, which obviously ultimately leads to greater diversity at all levels of the business. It's why we launched Coaches of Color, actually, as a, mm. as a, as a, as a business, yeah, as an offering. It was just an unapologetic, unapologetic offering of equitable learning and development. I think when people hear DEI or EDI or, you know, however they phrase it, the focus or the first thing that comes to a lot of people's heads is tackling racism. Understandably, it's, it's obviously huge. But obviously DEI encompasses a lot more than that. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, like what else it encompasses, what are the things people need to consider when they're implementing DEI strategies. And... Um, yeah, how even the concept of intersectionality plays a part. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, any, any, if you if you just think for yourselves, any which way you identify any part of your identity, right? So any which way you can describe a part of your identity, rather. So for me, you know, there is, uh, I'm a woman. I'm British-born Filipino. I'm a Londoner. I'm. Uh, Oh goodness! I'm nearly forty-five years old now. Um, I'm, a, I'm I was a single mum for a big part of my time. I went to uh, a Catholic, you know, state school. Um, a number, all sorts. I have a large port wine birthmark on on the right, right, right side of my body. Right, I have. There are a number of ways that I identify parts of myself. Right, that shape who I am. Um, and that list can go on. My religion. My, being an introvert or an extrovert, my hobbies, mm -hmm. right? I think we, in the workplace, it's useful to think about isms, racism, sexism, ableism, and all these other things. But actually, you know, what we need to start thinking about is our diff the differences that we bring in the way that we operate as individuals and the different needs that we have. So, um, you know, when I was a single parent, um, you know, I, I had certain requirements, right? Uh, I, I want, I was, I was really focused on getting paid and getting paid for what I were. I was, I was keen on making sure I had financial security. Um, and that was what I was gunning for. And that, that, that really sparked ambition in me to just climb because it was about financial security for me and my kids. Having said that, the organization wasn't set up for me because what would often happen is that because people knew I was a single mum, people would think that I wouldn't be able to go to evening events 
or that I want wouldn't want to do certain things. Little did they know that I probably had better childcare options than any of them and anyone in the organisation. Thankfully, to my mum and dad, big up mum and dad. Thank you very much. Peace. This is like the two hundred seventy third episode of the podcast. That might be the first shout out to mum and dad we have had in the entire <laughs> oh, series. I, I'd miss out on opportunities. Um, because the media world often is is more than just a nine to five in terms of creating opportunities for yourself. So for me, um, I've kind of gone slightly wavered on the question here, but for me, it's it is about understanding the way in which we work and the beliefs that we have, and and how we can widen the the access to those things to more people. If you look at the media industry, um, I said it earlier. It's 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 rooted in in men in middle class. Um, often the leaders are middle aged, um, private educated, uh, white. Right. This is this is the systems. So it would typically mean then that the way that we operate isn't going to best support those who have disabilities or those that have ADHD or dyslexia because we like to do things really quickly and you've got to come to a room and and be able to think on your feet and we value being able to think on your feet. So for me, I think it's just an awareness of of a a full human experience rather than just one that is rooted in people who have childminders who don't typically, you know, don't typically have at-home responsibilities who can stay to all hours in the workplace, um, who are going to be able to connect with with other men over the golf course, things like this. Mm. I think we need to be able to open up um, the way in which we do things generally rather than just thinking about racism or sexism or ableism being these problems. Who are we not opening the doors to because we only have one way of doing things typically? makes me think of... The fact that the word resilience has been bandied around a lot, especially over the last year or two, I think it's such a dangerous concept. Like so, dangerous. For, for, so dangerous. So dangerous. Sorry. I think especially in this industry, you know, I worked in a job that was really stressful um, and that word resilience was used all the time. And I think for anybody who's dealing with any extra layers to the ones I was dealing with, it's a really unfair concept to use against them. It really is yeah. not taking into account all the things that people are dealing with. It's, so it's, is that putting the burden on them to yeah. almost you know, drag themselves up and you know try yes. and do stuff that they don't? Okay, I get it. Yeah, and it's if if you don't deal with it, it's a problem with you. Maybe you need mm. some extra training to be more resilient. Bad. Mm. <laughs> no. Yeah, and you know, and and that kind of lack of diversity that exists in the industry just just. Uh, makes those things stick and stay. So you know, uh, I definitely, I definitely worked with people before who valued people who were robust. I.e., they can get bashed about. They can, they can take it. They're they're always going to step up again, and it's going to be all right. They can handle troublesome characters, right? Um, and we could put them into loads of good situations, and they're just not going to, they're not going to melt. This this was the kind of narrative, and I think. Because that that's a, that's a privileged perspective, and you're surrounded by other privileged people and people who don't know any better, we then just pass that word around. And I remember taking on words from my directors and managers and thinking, "Oh yeah, I was taught that this is a good value. I'm going to look for that or a good quality. I'm going to look for that in people too." Until you start to 
be told differently and, ch- and be challenged by the, you know, the status quo needs to be challenged more, but you can't really do that if we're all the same. And I think those words, robust, resilient, polished, you know, these words stay yeah. around for a while because because we believe them and, and and it does take some disruption in order to unlearn that. I suppose it goes back to what you said at the start about exactly unlearning. You used yeah. that word right at the start and I thought that was so interesting. So yeah, that's fascinating to hear that that is threaded throughout the discussion. There are so many grassroots organizations who are trying to do something about diversity. And to your point, there are organizations like yourself and even some champions within big businesses. Are you confident that if we came back to this discussion in a couple of years' time, we would see more progress made, not just in terms of awareness, but in actually delivering tangible change? Today, I'm going to answer and say that in two years' time, we will see change. We, w- we would have seen change. Mm. Um, there is a driving demand um, for organisations to be better, mm. to be fairer, to stand up for something, to have a purpose. You see that in, you know, research from the big five, just in terms of purpose over profit and the expectations from both consumers, advertisers, employees to be associated with somewhere, employed by somewhere where there is a purpose to what they do. Um, So I absolutely, I wouldn't do this job if overall I didn't believe that we were going to get better and things that do change. What I would say as a kind of watch out and why I'm saying this, I caveated it slightly with today is because on some days it can feel more disheartening. It can feel slightly less hopeful, but I think that's, that's the journey. It is ups and downs and, you know, we learn from what's going on around us and we need to support each other. If we're going to keep on moving forward I really do firmly believe that we need to look at things as though we do rise together. How can I support others? Who can I share this thing that I've learned with? Um, Who can we reach down and help to pull up? Or who do I need to ask for help? And I need to be quite humble with that fact. Uh, This is a community thing and it is a societal thing. And I, I, I love the fact that I found work in a place where we're not all kind of trying to hold on to what we know and actually we're trying to share it. And so I suppose if anyone is, is listening and interested in doing good DEI work, I think it is, that's my kind of lasting piece of advice. I think that to work with mm-hmm. others and, 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 and build community doing this, don't do this on your own. Well, that is as you know, practical a place to end as I think we could have found there. So Elaine, thank you so much for coming on and having a chat. If anybody wants to find you, find out about more about your your work and your projects, where can they sort of seek you out? Oh, I'm on LinkedIn um, under Elaine Delacruz, funnily enough. I think maybe I'm the <laughs> Elaine Delacruz on LinkedIn. You're uh, so lucky. You're so lucky. I've just, like, <laughs> you are the I'm, Elaine Delacruz to us. Like I, I Googled it and there are many. London alone. <laughs> there are many Elaine Delacruzes globally. Project 23 is project23works.com and we're also coachesofcolour.com. What I would say is, you know, I'm, I'm a real person. Please reach out to me. I do like to hear uh, stories, individuals, like challenges, etc. cetera. Um, and if we can put people in touch with other people who can help, if it's not us, then we're always willing to do that too. But yeah, reach out to me. Nice, fantastic. Fabulous. And Joe, 
Obviously, you've just reached the one-year anniversary of uh, your employment with Grub Street Journal. Where yes. can people Yay. find that? <laughs> Where's that gone? Um, we're at grubstreetjournal.com. That's where you can buy copies and sign up for our newsletter, The Magazine Diaries. Well, thank you, Elaine. Thank you, Joe, for coming on and having a really interesting chat. Um, we are going to be dealing with Dee and I in a chapter in Media Moments 2023, which is out this week. You can head across to voices.media forward slash MM23 to sign up for that. We would love to get your feedback on that. So please do download it, read it, let it percolate, and then let us know what else we could be talking about next year. You can also go to Voices.media to sign up to our daily newsletter. Now that condenses the four most important news stories of the day into a single email for you. You can also sign up to our community where we discuss everything media related and non-media related a lot of the time. So for now, thank you so much for listening. It's been a fascinating season of Media Voices. Thanks again to Joe and Lane and thank you for listening.